Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferrance, and this is episode number 37. Got a really enjoyable interview coming at you today. I think y'all will dig it. But first, I wanted to get into an idea that I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple months. It's something that has also come up in a few conversations I've had with some of the various people I've met since I started this show, and also hanging out with all the great people over on the Complete Producer Network. So I wanted to talk about committing to yourself. It's kind of become the underlying theme of this podcast almost a little inadvertently. I think it's because me doing this podcast is probably one of the first times I have really made a career-related commitment to putting me first. And let's be clear before we get too far into this. I'm not talking about anything that is remotely selfish. I don't think there's any benefit to selfishly thinking of yourself before everyone else. I'm talking about making a decision to prioritize your goals or endeavors and not always the goals of others. Maybe it's better worded as prioritizing your own happiness over pleasing others. I think this topic might be a bit more relatable to anybody in our audience that is in some way working for another person right now, maybe as an engineer or as a composer or touring musician, etc. But I don't think the artist is immune to this concept. Now, I don't normally like to revolve these opening topics around myself, but I think in this case, it's probably the easiest way. I brought it up multiple times in this show. The first 10 years of my career, I put the client above all else and the work before everything. And as I've said, I don't regret it. I had a blast. I learned a lot. I met lifelong friends. But looking back, I never had myself in mind. I made every decision based on what I thought would be the best for the project or for the client. You wanted to work a couple more hours, even though it's 2 a.m.? Sure thing, let's do it. You need me to get up early and tune this vocal for you before you get to the studio? Done. I would even drop everything when I got an email with a mix note and go into the other room and do the notes immediately. Now, my clients loved me for it, but I was doing exactly what I tell you all not to do. I was putting in relentless but blind hard work without ever thinking about whether it was putting me on the path I wanted to be on. I assumed if I did the best and hardest work I could, that success would just come knocking on my door. And like I said, I don't regret it at all. I just wish that I had the knowledge and mindsets that I have now back then. But hey, we all know hindsight is twenty twenty. Now that I've taken the mindset of committing to my own long-term vision and my own long-term goals while still doing the best service I possibly can for those I work with, I feel more successful and more fulfilled than I ever did before. So here's my point. You're going to do a lot of things in your career. You're going to work with various people. Not everything you do is going to directly align with your end goal, and that's fine. But you have to remain in some way committed to yourself and not get lost in the satisfaction of pleasing everyone around you. Because let's be honest, it is satisfying. But I think that you'll find one day you will look back and wish you'd made some decisions differently. A lot of the idea of committing to yourself is knowing as best you can where you ultimately want to end up. That's the only way you're able to commit to taking yourself there. If you're a young engineer who loves hip-hop, don't pay your dues and put in years of work advancing up the ladder at a film scoring stage just because it was the job you got. Do it at the studio that your idols are working at. If you're a top-liner but your real dream is to be an artist, don't let your schedule get filled with co-writes for all the usual suspects. Save a day a week and invite your favorite collaborator over to write for your own project. If you're a producer or a composer that feels uninspired from chasing the current hot sound or the current brief, take a little time to go outside your box and create for your own artistic fulfillment. You might find that you even start the next new sound. Those are the kind of things that I mean when I say commit to yourself. You're not being selfish. 
You're just remembering that you ultimately have a vision for yourself and that only you can work towards that vision. I 100% guarantee that the hustle and grind will take over your life at some point. But you have to remember to keep yourself in check and take a few moments to be sure that you don't get lost in it all. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. Today's guest is producer, engineer, and musician Tom Monahan. Tom spent the first 15 years of his career as a touring musician before transitioning to working behind the glass. Since then, he's worked with artists such as Nico Case, Fruit Bats, Stevie Nicks, Vetiver, and Medicine. He's also had music placements in various films and TV shows, occasionally writes for Tape Op Magazine, and as a composer has done scores for nearly a dozen documentaries and several podcasts and web series, including one for Vice last year called Essential Workers. He's also recently taken his passion for music and creative sound design into the podcasting world with his work with Treefort. So look for their newest show, Killing Hollywood, The Cotton Club Murder, which should be out when you're hearing this. So from a touring musician to a music producer and now also a podcast producer, we've got a ton of stuff to talk about. So welcome to the show, Tom Monahan. Hey, Tom, how are you? Yo, Travis, nice to see you. I know. I know we Very are. Nice to we see can you. actually see each other because we're on Zoom. We we spoke the other day. <laughs> I know, I know. It's good. It's good to see you, and uh, and nice to be on your podcast. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. I know, uh, I know you're busy with a million things. So we'll uh, <laughs> we'll we'll tell your story, and you can get back to work. I'm excited because I always love chatting with you, but I actually don't. I don't really know your story, so I'm kind of excited because I'll, I'll get to learn a little. But um, before we do that, I want to yeah. talk about your studio. A little, okay. Bit, a bit of a weird start. I love your studio. I feel like the way that you've built it out, because I've worked over there uh, twice, I think, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like it breeds creativity. Is that a philosophy of yours to just have nothing in the way? I mean, thank you. Uh, that is an amazing compliment. I think maybe it's it's funny. I never really thought about that way, but I did come up in a studio environment where the technology is supposed to be as invisible as you can make it. Right. And so I did want to make this place uh, a spot where everything was hooked up all the time. You could walk up to any keyboard or to a piano or something, and someone would be playing, and I and you would just seamlessly transition into record, and they wouldn't even know it was happening. That definitely was something I tried to do as much as possible in here. Nobody really likes to, like, hey, could you hold on? Let me find this. Let me, let me do this. And it might have even come out of, like, you know how horrible it is when you have, like, um, native instruments complete and you're, like, you get it. And you're, like, you spend the first month starring favorites and all of these <laughs> things. It's just, like, too many options, you know? And so I thought if I'm going to have a lot of options, the thing that I have to do is reduce the friction in all of those options. So there, you know, that's why, yeah, there's all the multiple mixers and multiple sets of monitors. And I wanted it to be a place where, like, if you wanted to, you could kind of come in and jam. And then before you knew it, it was all going down in multi-track and, like, nobody knew that it was happening. Yeah. No, it's amazing. I remember we I was over there for a week. I feel like every morning there was, like, a new stack of guitar pedals that you took out. And you were like, hey, this is great. Check this out. You guys should play with this one and play with this one. And it was just, uh, it was like a wonderland. I, I was just it. trying to fuck with you. I was just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it's also because you were, you know, you were here with Frank. Yeah. Titas. And I just thought it would be good if I sort of like added something into the mix. But it was sort of funny because I remember that you guys came on the first day and Frank was like, hey, you don't happen to have a Korg M1, do you? And I was like, yeah, as a matter of fact, I, you know, a friend of mine just gave me one in a trade. And I've got this rack one sitting inside and that sort of set the tone for it, you know? Oh, yeah. I'm a horrible gear hoarder i mean it's terrible i have like i have guitar cables that go back to like 1986 you know what i mean like it's got it's ridiculous yeah there's some sort of dna in this in every bit of every studio i've ever had it's sort of carried on into the next one you know yeah i'm in the process of designing my 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 garage is going to become a studio and your place is like a huge inspiration for what i'm trying to do I just want nice. I want to be able to just create immediately or for somebody else to create. Cause I mean, I grew up playing guitar. That's how I got into music. And my guitar is in a case under the bed and I don't play it. 
It's like, can't why, have it that why, way. Can't, why can't it be right next Travis. to me, ready to plug in? I know it's a horrible thing to say. Everybody's going to know. Is, might have to cut that out. I, that is, <laughs> yeah, that part needs to get lifted out immediately. <laughs> can't say those things. No, but that's like, I love playing guitar. I'm a terrible guitar player. I'm like the worst, but I love playing guitar. And so that I just have like, that's what I was doing this morning was my guitar pusher, my dealer was here. <laughs> A friend of mine who has an amazing shop called Old Style Guitars here in LA, Ruben Cox, he came by and he built a, he, I was, I told him I was looking for some Jaguars and he dropped a couple off that he had built. And one of them just, I was like, I can't buy this guitar. I can't buy this guitar. I don't want to buy this guitar. And it just was every day, you know, instruments need to be played. And every day, if they're, if you have to go through the process of getting to them, that slows down the chance that you'll get something. I think the one thing that I've learned in the last year sort of being here by myself is that you need to just really have immediate capture. Yeah. I went dawless on a couple of these stations and it's been so much better. Just flash recorders like sound devices mix pre and okay. I just decided I'd use it as a flash recorder on, off of this modular rig and I just make a lot more that way. It's all about removing the friction. In a way, it's, the studio is set up even past the point that you saw it. Okay. Every station has an integrated flash recorder, some sort of immediate recording device on it, so that the moment that you're making sound, even if you are not in Pro Tools, if you're not in some sort of you know Ableton or whatever, even if it's not plugged in, you can just hit it and get going. Oh, wow. And deal That's with it amazing. later. Yeah. So every station has that now. That's cool. Well, there is like a layer of uh, like when you sit in front of the computer or you walk over and you look at it and you know you can flip a playlist, it's a different mentality. I think, you know, you'll just keep jamming when you don't have that ability on the flash recorder. You'll just keep going. And as soon as mm -hmm. you look over at the screen and you see Pro Tools, you're like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to drop a marker because I like that. And then I'll just do another playlist. And then you've kind of left that headspace, which, you know, I think people that kind of catch themselves in a jam and create that way and like build loops out of it probably agree with what we're talking about. But uh, I think a lot of people don't create that way, but I think it's a fun experiment for people. They should check it out. Well, I think it's, if you're a better musician and you can do things twice, then you're lucky, but I'm a terrible musician. <laughs> I'm lucky to get it happening once. So I need to be like ready to go. I mean, that is indeed completely true. It's just, I don't know what the hell I'm doing sometimes on instruments. I have a lot of them around and I'm awful on all of them. And um, if I make magic or something, I'm not even sure I would call it magic, but if I make a noise that is not horrible, it's good to be in record and can <laughs> go back and, and search for whatever that was later, you know? Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, there, there are, you know... I don't know. I guess I'm, I don't know how transparent I should be here, but I don't know why I'm going to tell the story, but I'm just going to go there. Uh, the first time I ever did acid, I listened to, you know, I was with friends and we were listening to Captain Beefheart. We were listening to Trout Mask Replica. And that is an incredibly inspirational record when you are tripping your face off. And we went into our practice space, which was, you know, in the basement of this house. And I had a four track there at the time. And and we all started recording and it was awesome. And I was like convinced that we had recorded an entire record. And I was like, it sounds like a biker movie from the 60s and everything. And I went back to those tapes and was just like, couldn't find any of those moments at all. None, <laughs> you know, of course, because it was terrible. But I had also, the problem was, was that I realized later, one, I was tripping and it probably sounded great. And it was actually horrible, which is, I'm sure is the truth of it all. But the thing that I realized later was that in that moment, I had just not set things up. I had to spend a couple moments setting things up and I hadn't set them up. If I'd had a room mic, it would have been a different thing to listen to. I just didn't have that. We were all recording direct. It was just like direct lines off of DIs, off the backs of amps and stuff. And so there was no way of even getting close to what I was hearing in the room. And I realized that even though I could, you know, blame the psychedelics for my terrible engineering and undoubtedly horrible playing, that the lesson to be taken away from it was that it's good to be prepared, yeah. especially going into nights that might involve, you know, dubious behavior to, uh, you know, to be ready to record. That's probably the, that's probably where it all stems from. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. That's awesome. Okay. So on that note, how'd you get into music? You played obviously for years and I read a story yeah. 
something I think uh, that I saw you you did an interview that you took your boombox apart and turned them into a microphone. So make sure we don't leave that story out. Uh, yeah, this is just turning into all the the to be all of my somewhat tumultuous recording of my youth. But um, yeah, I had a boombox. I loved the way it sounded. The very first. Oh, God. All right. So the very first long form recording I ever did, this is all going to sound like I talk about nothing but drugs and recording. So I apologize <laughs> in advance. So this is when I was young and you brought this up. So um, this is my fault. Yes. Well, no, it's mine because I have a motor mouth. But when I was young, the very first long form recording that I ever did was that I decided that I would make a 60 minute cassette of stuff for my friends to listen to while they were stoned. And it was deliberately just going to be all these things. And so of like all these little bits of records cut up and like, you know, dropping things on my, like recording my turntable and having a record playing and like dropping something on it so that it would be jarring and weird. And, you know, like walking into a bathroom and it sounds like someone's peeing, but then like pouring a gallon's worth of water out very slowly so that it just went on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And what happened was that I did a lot of this with my boombox. So I was driving around with my friends and like I would hang the boombox out the window of the car and, you know, we would put the boombox in the street and like drive up really close and like hit the boombox. I mean, I was just torturing these things. And I love the way it sounded. So when I was young, you know, you didn't have eBay and Reverb and all these places to get things, any kind of recording stuff, you'd be lucky if you could get things at Radio Shack. So I loved this boombox and I realized, oh, there were microphones in here. So I pulled them out. I did a little bit of research and talked to some people who knew more about electronics than me and realized there were these electret condensers and they just needed a power source and they needed to be wired up. And I had a friend who was working at some company. They might have even been doing like robotics or something. It was like a very simple thing for him to do, but he drew me the schematic for the mic. And then I just made little cylinders and stuck these things in and put a power pack on there and an XLR and wired them up. And those were my drum overheads for like all the way through the early 90s because I didn't have anything else. That's awesome. So I had like a pile of like 57s and 58, no... I didn't know what a kick mic was. And I had these like weird little electret microphones for my boombox that I'd stuck inside, like basically glue pens that I had hollowed out and like gotten rid of the glue and cleaned them up. And I didn't even paint them or anything. And they had really ugly switches hanging off of them. They were so gnarly, but I, um, I used them on all my four track stuff. Um, like I bought a four track in 1986 was my, I bought a Tascam 246. Nice. And then was in a band where, you know, if you, I don't know if you can see the through line here, but no one could play. The only thing we could do is we would, we would just get together and we lived in the bottom half of this house and we couldn't make a lot of noise. So we figured out a headphone system and then we would all um, just take 57s and we would play rhythms. We would play like the drum parts, but everyone would have one microphone and we'd be tapping on it so that we would make a drum kit and make and try to make it sound like a drum machine by like having four of us with 57s all you know sitting in the basement with this four track and a little mixer and because we couldn't make it loud acoustically we would run the microphones through pedals and we would make our drum parts that way until we had enough money to buy a drum machine that's awesome i would just yeah. while you were talking i'm sitting here thinking of all the things i do with a 57 you could scratch it tap it yeah, mm -hmm. that's oh, that's cool. Yeah, because well, we couldn't make any noise and like we, you know, because we didn't want to disturb our, you know, everybody upstairs and and uh, but we found all this stuff to do. So I I got into recording direct and through pedals really early. That's cool. It yeah. it is such a it's such a unique sound. You know, so many people just they want to mic their amp or whatever it is, but uh, using the the what are they contact mics and going DI mm -hmm. into like pedals and stuff. You can get crazy sounds that way. It's just really fascinating when you go down those roads. So Well, it's cool now because you can just hop on Amazon and buy any like, you know, clip-on contact mic that they use for like first-year violin students, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And those things are super cheap. And then you just, you know, put them on the headstock of an acoustic guitar and run that, yeah, directly into like a compressor or an EQ pedal. And it sounds amazing. Like a little bit of like echo, like a short, tight slapback. Yeah. And just have that blended in with your normal mic. It sounds amazing. That's awesome. So you were playing in a couple bands. Did you end up producing and recording some of those bands or did you get into production when you stopped playing? 
it has been a complete side-by-side thing the entire time. Okay. You know, the first bands that were real bands I was in, we were actually more recording than live, and we were releasing cassettes Oh, cool. at local record stores. And then we actually sort of learned to play. I was in a band. We got signed to Atlantic in the in the early 90s, along with everyone else that had a enemy single of the week, which <laughs> it, we were lucky enough to have. But I spent the money when we got signed on a half-inch eight-track and a little Mackie 1604. And then I did all the demos for the record. And um, I was constantly recording bands. And then I, I moved to Northampton, Massachusetts in 94, and did a record uh, that summer that wound up the band got signed to Sub Pop. Uh, so I did their f- record for Sub Pop in 95. And I was constantly, you know, I, I was playing in a band called Lilies, and I was recording with a guy named Mike Deming at Studio 45 in Hartford, Connecticut. And Mike taught me a lot. He was a really uh, very disciplined music student producer who thought, like, you know, he was very regimented in studio protocol and no one should touch the console unless they had a degree in electrical engineering, you know, that kind of thing, like very old school. So I was constantly doing that. I didn't produce Lilies, but I was starting to produce bands, you know, and co-produce with Mike. And then I got hired at a, uh, as a staff engineer at a place called Slaughterhouse in 95. That was in Hadley, Mass, right near the University of uh, Massachusetts, Amherst. So when I was a staff engineer, I never knew what I was getting myself into. That was before cell phones and email. There would just be like a phone call with Mark Miller, who hired me there. And he'd be like, you got a session on Thursday with a band called Dead Fuck. (laughs) And I would be like, all right, cool. And I would show up and the whole gig at Slaughterhouse was from load in to first tones, 45 minutes. Like it was very gorilla. And it's in an old slaughterhouse, like the drum room was the meat locker and and Dead Fuck happened to be amazing. They were a bunch of 16-year-old kids who got dropped off by their girlfriends, and they were pretty death metal. I did a bunch of death metal records and folk records, and but like, like I said, I would just never know what was coming through the door. But at the same time, I was the band I was in in the 90s, Monsterland, had broken up, so I, I joined another band when I was in Northampton. Then I started touring with Lilies, and I was doing records whenever I was off the road, and then the same with the Scud Mountain Boys, and then... Scud Mountain Boys turned into the Pernice Brothers, and I joined that band and, you know, co-produced that first record with Mike. And then I just kept going and touring with Pernice and doing more records when I, whenever I wasn't on the road, you know, did the working with David Berman from the Silver Jews and, and just a string of things from Slaughterhouse or wherever. And then I wound up moving to L.A. I was in New York for a while, and then we moved to Los Angeles. And I sort of, I had just gotten married, and um, I was finishing a Pernice Brothers record, and I realized if I go on tour for this record, I won't be home for nine months. And it just seemed like a dumb way to start life in a new city and life with someone that I really loved, you know? Yeah. And so I thought, I can't really do this. And I, I thought about it for a while, and then... I was like, yeah, I can't do it. I'm going to have to leave. I have to stop touring. And then I had already done one record with Andy Kabik from Vetiver at that point. Mm. We were starting the second record. And then I did Devendra, Banhart, Cripple Crow with that whole crew. And then it just, it just like took off. And then for the next, solidly for the next 10 years, it was just nonstop. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. That's awesome. Production, yeah. That's cool. Was that um, the idea of like not going back on the road and being in that new city, was that stressful or was it exciting? Well, I think it was, it had its, uh, it was stressful because I think whenever you, you know, you kind of build your identity around being, it was the first time I hadn't been in a band since the 80s. Yeah. You know, and I wasn't just saying goodbye to that band. I was sort of saying, I don't think I'm going to be in a band for a while. And I don't know that the production thing is going to take off. I didn't really know what I 
what was happening. And I, you know, and I loved everybody in Pernice Brothers and, you know, I loved that music, but I I knew that it, it just wasn't sustainable and going in that direction. And so my identity was, you know, I was a bass player in a band and then I did production and I loved recording and I always loved recording, but I was doing records all the time and I wasn't going to be a bass player. And I, I made a, a weird, I think I made kind of a unconscious line. I just never really played on anybody's records after that. Oh, okay. Like I didn't, yeah. Where a lot of people will like be like, oh, I'm a musician and let me do your record. And I play all over it. I was like, no, I'm just going to record and I'm not going to play on these records. And, and what I did was I switched over to like do textures and I just wanted to become a really good editor. Right. That was what I realized that there was so much power in finding moments. And it all goes back to that stupid four track acid trip thing. See, this is what I'm saying. I'm still looking for it. I can't find it. <laughs> and, um, but I think that was part of it. You know, I, I was, I realized that I had some perspective. Uh, I had some use to people while I was collaborating with them as an outside ear where I could listen and hear what they were doing. But I know where that comes from. And that is, there's an earlier conversation that I had with a friend of mine. I might as well just name him because he, he might not even know this story. If, if he, I don't know if he, that he would listen, but um, but uh, I I met Rich Costi, you know, the mixer, Rich Costi. Yeah. So I, I met Rich in the mid nineties while he was doing a Lily's record. He and I got to be friends and he moved to LA and came out here and started working on all these amazing projects and working for Rick Rubin and, you know, working with Fiona Apple and Rich and I stayed in contact and I was living in Northampton and I didn't really have a computer and I, this was the like, probably like 2000 and I didn't really have a, com a computer and I didn't really know Pro Tools and Rich was in LA and he was working with like rage and you know all these different bands like he did something like Wu Tang or someone like that. It was just he was just working with incredible artists all the time. And Rich said, Hey, if you had your Pro Tools chops together, you could come to LA and like I could hire you as an assistant. And like if you I'm doing amazing stuff and I'm around all these incredible people. And I just spent this week with this amazing producer. It might have been like Brendan O'Brien, I think it was. And he's like, and I learned so much in that week and I, I really wish that you had that that would be a great opportunity for you. And I remember I got off the phone and I was just like sitting in my house in Northampton and that world was so far away, you know? Yeah. I remember at that moment, I thought, well, I'm not around like Brendan O'Brien or I'm not around Rick Rubin or any of these big bands, but I'm around all these people that I know that are always so creative and everybody always knows something more than me and they always do something better than me. So like I can learn from whoever I'm around. It doesn't have to be some big person. Everybody that I do something with has like, there's really something to learn. Everybody does something in their own way that's like incredibly beautiful and so thought through. I thought I'm just going to learn from the people I'm around no matter who they are. And I'm not going to make a value judgment on like that this world that I'm so far away from that that's what I need to desire and that's what I need to go towards. I just am going to be creatively engaged with the people that I'm working with, you know, and I, I would go and do a, a record with someone and I'm like, wow, that kick drum's amazing. They're like, oh yeah, I took a Bible and I slammed it down on my kitchen table and that's my sample. And I'm just like, oh my God, that sounds incredible. And I never thought about it. Like, I don't need an 808. I could just put Pro Tools in grid mode, which I wound up getting and wound up learning and teaching myself. And I just remember thinking, I'll just learn from everyone who's around me. Yeah, you know? that's a, a, a really great story, but an amazing angle to have and to, to have the, I guess it wouldn't be foresight, but to know that learning from everybody around you is the key to your success and your happiness I don't know, it seems wiser than what, whatever age you were at the time, if that may, if that makes any sense. Oh, you know? yeah. I mean, I was, I was probably lucky I had gotten that wise at that age because I was pretty much a dumbass most of the time. But yeah. I remember it being a very conscious decision because I was faced with two choices. One, where I would like look at things and everything would be a dim lit version of this something that someone else was telling me was better. Or I would just like look at the things that were in front of me and I... I thought, well, I don't know. Genius takes a lot of forms. And I remember that yeah. I had a, a, my friend Jose at the time had this band called Spouse. And Jose was just always doing these, like his recordings were incredible. And I was like, 
I like Jose's recordings better than Rage Against the Machine anyways. <laughs> you know, I had a studio in my house and it was just like, you know, I turned the spare bedroom into a control room and I was making Pernice Brothers records or whoever else while I was on and off the road. And I just thought, eh, okay, cool. Yeah, it's something I've actually been talking about a lot recently because it was just a like an intro to another episode is you kind of like, you knew what you wanted. Like a lot of people would have chased that LA gig and they would have jumped, you know, jumped in the car and then chased this thing that somebody told them that they should be chasing and, oh, go work for, work for Rich so you can meet Rick Rubin and then you can work for Rick Rubin. And I just, I think a lot of people get blinded by that. So I think it's impressive that you knew what, what you wanted. So I think that's dope. I, well, I was also afraid of complete and utter failure, like <laughs> going, like I just thought I should probably do the thing that I know how to do more than like try to learn Pro Tools in a month as I'm driving to California. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I, I mean, yeah, don't, no, it's, it, I mean, I'd like to think it was something. It was, I definitely just looked at that and was like, I don't know if I'm ready for that really quite yet, you know? Yeah. And I don't really, I remember Pro Tools was just, as, as just so like, what is that, you know? Yeah. I wanted to go back to your production angle of being the outside objective listener. And I think that that's like uh, becoming a, it's not a common form of production anymore because I feel like most producers are multi-instrumentalists and they want to play 90% of your record or they want to replace 35% of what you played. And they're always thinking about what they're going to play. And I think to be able to step back, just listen to the music and uh, particularly mute things. <laughs> <laughs> and create space, I think is like, it's old school. It's like, uh, you know, you're getting into like Rick Rubin. He wasn't playing instruments or Phil Ramone wasn't, he was hiring players and working with them. So I think, I think that's a cool angle. Not enough kids are being the outside ear. They're like being a participant. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but um, that's just a, a, a little ramble there, but. No, well, I mean, it, it might have been totally different had I grown up at a time when the tools were so easy to get at that, you know, the tools come when you get your first phone, you know? True. I think it's really great. I Maybe my, it would have been a different thing, but I just, um, yeah, I felt like my job was the assembler, the keeper of the timeline. Yeah. You know, I also kind of came up with tape edits. So I'm sort of firmly believe the end, you know, I worked with Jim Scott and Jim Scott said to me one time, I said something about, I don't know, it was like editing or something. And he goes, ah, we can't do that. Led Zeppelin, you know, they never would have done that. And and I so I said, oh, Led Zeppelin wouldn't have, you know, done this edit or something. And he's like, no, they just wouldn't have done it because that's a dumb idea. He goes, but <laughs> he's like, really, literally on tape, you could do most of the stuff, like almost everything you can do with computers in just terms of editing, you could do with tape. You just had to have more skill. You only got one shot to do it. It's true. You can't like undo the tape edit, you know? And so I came up with like, you, you know, committed and you could commit tape edits, but also like you talk to like old school dudes who are working on monkeys records and stuff like that. And they, what they would do, I remember talking to someone and they said, oh, what we used to do is we would, we'd mix the song and then we'd mix up to the first chorus. And then, then we'd go into the second verse, we'd add a bit and we would mix just the verses first because we knew we had to flip all the plate reverbs and the echo sends and everything. So they would change in the chorus. They only had one plate reverb. They only had one chamber, but they wanted in terms of the way that they thought about the production, they wanted to like change it up and they wanted the plate to change and they wanted this to change here. And they, so they would go and they would mix only the verses and then they would mix the choruses and then they just chop the whole thing together later. That's a production technique that people used in the late 60s, early 70s. Like that was no big deal. Those were the skills you needed to be an engineer, you know? Yeah. And so it was just thinking ahead on production. Now, the difference is, is that like when you have a DAW, you can approach it in an, like an extremely intuitive way and like where you're just messing around, you're playing, you're like got your fingers you know, in the toy box and you're just pulling things out and putting them in places. And if you don't like it, you can open up another session, back up, do it again. And so you don't have to have the same sort of thinking that you would have in the, you know, the 60s, 70s, but the technical capability to do it was actually there. It was just extremely hard and you had to think way ahead. And yeah. so it's just access and the removal of barriers kind of cycling back to the beginning of this conversation that like, 
when you remove all these barriers, it's just it's a, just a different form. It's even the producers that want to get more engaged and play on your records and stuff. It's because that's the entry point. They you know begin their pathway into recording. You can begin it completely on your own. And there are all of this, all this technology to support you. There are all these compositional instruments that are presented to you, like pre-made loops and drum machines with presets and synthesizers and stuff. You don't have to make all those things. And so you don't necessarily start with the idea that you have to develop the skills of synthesis, of collaboration, of like, you don't have to find another kid in another garage to like who has an amp and you have a drum set, that kind of thing. You don't right. necessarily need to do that. Yeah. There's no high art, low art value judgment on it. It's just different, you know? Yeah. I don't need to know how to go out and trap my own food. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we've, we now have supermarkets that we can go to and I don't have to raise chickens if I want eggs, you know? Because I can yep. go somewhere and get eggs. That's the yeah. thing. I don't need to know how to align a tape machine and do tape edits if I... You don't want to beat an artist to death to have them do it a million times in the studio. It's like we can get to the essence and the energy of what they're doing in all these different ways now. Oh, yeah. I think it's amazing. And I think, um, you know, it comes up all the time on this podcast that just the access to technology is just really, I think, pushing everybody and creating genres that would have never existed otherwise. I mean, technology always breeds that kind of inspiration. So I want to ask you, going back to getting to Los Angeles and getting into production, you said things started to snowball. I had a question, and I'm sure a lot of young producers or new engineers would have a similar question for you. And that's, obviously you were getting work and you said things were snowballing, bands were coming, people wanted to work with you. Did you find that that was because of your network? Was it because of a record that you made? Or were you finding music you really loved and just reaching out and saying, I want to do your next record? Where did, how did you go from gig to gig to gig to gig? Because I think that's what kids really fight with, is finding the next one. It's a combo of all three, you know? Yeah. It wasn't just one. Obviously, that's probably the answer that everyone would give. But it really <laughs> was, it was, um, I feel like people who like certain melodies always sort of find people who like similar melodies. Right. That's how I've found it in my life. It's like loving music and being a fan of things if you're really down that rabbit hole and you really love something, you sort of wind up bumping into the people who love the same stuff as you because the world isn't that big as much as everyone would like to think it is. It's not that big. And the electronic nature of our global communications network means that you could be, you could find people that are all over the place and still collaborate with them. And I think it's just loving things and being really into them. That's how it's always kind of happened was it would just be, you know, I reached out to plenty of people. I mean, I wound up in the band Lilies because I got their first seven inch and that was the first fan letter I ever wrote. And I was the first fan letter that they ever got. <laughs> That's awesome. Kurt and I became <laughs> friends and our bands played together. And then when that band that I was in broke up, he just called me one day and was like, you know, hey, do you want to do this? And that's how it's always been. It's like, hey, do you want to do this? And my friends were always making records and we were always sort of hanging out. So I guess you could say if you wanted to break it down, yes, it's definitely a network thing. Yeah. You know, I did the whole thing where you take meetings with record companies and like, but that never went really anywhere. It's like you have to be connected to the people who are making things. Yeah. I always felt the my connection to that was just as a fan, just yeah. straight up, like as a fan, like just, I love this music, full stop. And after a while, you make a few things and people are like, oh, what do you do? And you're like, oh, I made this record and that record. But I mean, I never felt really comfortable saying like, hi, my name is Tom Monahan. And I'd really like to produce your record. Like that just was not, never my vibe. It doesn't work very well for me. <laughs> it's it, it like... And that might work for certain people because I certainly know people who are so excellent at that because it's genuinely, genuinely who they are. And and I think if you feel comfortable with that, you know, that's a, a true path for you. You should, that would be something you should acknowledge and consider and follow. But for me, I don't know. I'm just like, I always just was like a a band member, you know, and even as a producer, I always felt like I'm just a band member in a room. I'm in a room with people 
trying to make something. Yeah. My role is just how do I reduce the friction to get from A to B? Like I was always able to see the macro from how are we going to get there and what's the plan? And like, we could do this or we could do this. And this is how we try to do something new. This is how we involve new energy. Here's what we've done before that was good, you know? And so that sort of informed having lasting relationships with people. But it it does come, It I will say this from the aspect of when I saw the music career start to slow down, because I think that's almost more valuable than how you build it up, is mm. that like you need to be in constant contact and within your community of people as a fan. And like if you really love it and you're out and you're seeing people and seeing shows and you're connected, that could be just following people and like, you know, just being really down and listening to everything they do and knowing everything about something and reaching out to those people and telling them that you're just, you're there and you're connected and you love the stuff that they're doing. When I got so busy that it was harder and harder and harder for me to do that part of it, the way my life is structured, I didn't have the ability to continue being out and being connected. Those pathways start to kind of like, they change and the economic nature of it changes where people will come in and, you know, they know that you can do something and they ask you to do something that they they consider the thing that you do. But it isn't necessarily always how I always connected with things. And so those types of situations, even though they were more lucrative economically, they were less likely to bring lasting creative flow and creative energies. They were just, they were money gigs. And I'm not saying that you don't need to do them, but you need, when you do a money gig, you need to put brackets around it, you know, (laughs) acknowledge that that's what it is. It doesn't have to be, it's not invalid because it's that way. You don't have to make music that you hate. You know, I've had friends who told me like, I did this gig, it wasn't the greatest gig in the world, but I learned how to make a better kick drum because of that. Yeah. Because this person did it differently than me. And so the main thing you have to do is with those types of gigs, you have to make sure that they don't take over the other sort of creative things that you're interested in and you just get them done and get them off your desk and go on to something else because they will start to remove you from the flow of the things you do want to do. Yeah, that's really interesting insight. I like that. I've Actually, nobody on the show has talked about the money gig, but it's so true and it and it happens but yeah, you you probably learn something from all of them, even if that thing that you learn is to, uh, you know, put your head down and get it done as fast as possible at a high quality as well. But yeah, yeah, you don't have to like you want to bring to it like you're a craftsman, like you're a carpenter or you're a, a session player or a journeyman in some way. You don't do shit work. You know what yeah. I mean? But you yeah. can't get your heart energy involved in it in the same way that you you dedicate your life to art and to some beauty that you want to bring into the world, you know? Yeah. And that's a thing where those types of jobs, when you get to a certain point, they become a reality and you you can't be dogmatic and say no to all those things. And some of them are you definitely, they won't be right and you do need to say no to them. But they're going to be ones where you're like, you find like some connection with this person and you feel like, yes, I could bring something to this and be a good collaborator here. Yep. And they, this person might need you, you know, this artist might need you in some way. But at the same time, you have to identify when they're going to start taking up time where they take away from things that are closer and truer to you. It's the fine balance. Well, yeah, because they become, they take their toll and you pay in other ways. True. Like you pay True. with your time. Your your time is the biggest one. Yeah. I think just in terms of starting out, I'm always surprised. I would say this, that I've talked to a lot of assistants. I always ask the same question and I'd say like, well, you know, did you go to school? Did you, are you self-taught? Like, how did you wind up here in this studio or whatever? And they would have different pathways to how they got there. And then I would say, well, are you, do you like record bands on your own, like you need to bring people in at night and stuff. And 90% of them say no. If you're not doing that, then you're this is just go get a job at like, I don't know, a pizza place or like somewhere else. Because you should be actively involved in the, you know, in creating somehow, whether you're doing it yourself or you want to bring that out of other people. It seems to me like if you want to do this gig, you need to be like it needs to be something that you would want to do no matter what. Oh, yeah. Like, I have done some 
one-on-one sort of, you know, things at different schools. And, you know, I've talked to people and they're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing this thing and I'm assisting. And then, you know, I'm just wondering when I'm going to start getting paid and stuff like that. And I'm just like, oh man, like that is a, an awful situation to be in because I understand it. But at the same time, it's like, you have to be, at least in my own experience, I can't really speak for anyone else, but it was just record after record for me that were like, okay, we need to do a new record. Okay, cool. Is there a budget? No. When do we start? Monday. Yeah. You know, that's how a lot of situations happen for me where I just was like, all right, let's just get in there and start going. And some of them work and some, excuse me, some of them don't. But I always had my own, you know, I was always firmly like own the means of production. And that was a bigger deal when you didn't have like sweet water and reverb and everything else. It was like, you know, take the time to have the tools to make things and then just make things and then see how it washes out. That is not a plan for anyone, but I don't think I ever had a plan B, you know? And so I just was like, let's just go do this, sleep, you know, eat dirt, sleep under the console. That's the way it goes. Like I just spent most of my life, like, you know, on the couch in some control room for like 10 years, you know, that 10 years of cranking through records from 2005 to 2015, like I wasn't home most of the time. I literally just worked around the clock. I like I did sleep in the control room a lot of times or to the room off to the side or on floors or whatever. And you just have the work. It's not like you work and work and work and you're like, oh, I'm staying in fancy places. And I'm, you know, you just do it because I wanted that moment of sitting in front of the monitors and hearing it all coming together. When yeah. you hear that, like the moment you hear that, that's all that it takes. You're working with some band and you really have them and you're focusing them in and they're performing something. You're multiple takes in, you're like writing in the studio and you hear them start to pull off stuff that nobody thought was going to happen. And then this thing comes out of the ether and you're sitting yeah. there and you can hear it. All the sounds are dialed. It sounds mixed and it just sounds like this beautiful music and someone's singing something and you are like, that didn't exist five minutes ago. This performance and this thing did not exist five minutes ago. And so, you know, I I was lucky to have a, a long, long time where I was recording tons of musicians on the floor. Nothing beats that. Oh yeah. And I do like the layering thing and I love electronic music and that's you know, samplers and drum machines and synths and stuff like that. But there is nothing that beats a console full of like 25 channels of microphones and people just with their backs into it. And then you're just like, what just happened? And everyone walks in and they're just like, oh my God. And then they go out and they do it again. And then they go out and they do it again. And then they start getting it in one or two takes. And then you get your system down and then they come into the control room, figure it out. You make a plan, you switch the mics up, you go back out, you readjust the compression, boom. And then you have a day and you've gotten like six or seven songs and you're like, how did that happen? They're miracles, but you have to spend a long time getting ready to get those days. They don't just come. You have to spend all the time with the console screwing up and the, you know, I turned around one time, my laptop was on fire in the middle of a mix. I mean, literally on fire in the middle of a mix. I had to walk over and pull the whole thing, pull all the cables, the battery and one of those old Macs went, so it was like shooting smoke out. And, and we pulled the battery, you know, pulled all the cables out. I called Mac support and the guy was like, well, have you tried turning it back on? And I was like, I don't know. He's like, pull the battery out and try to plug it back in. And I did, and I plugged it back in whole keyboards toast, melted screen. I plugged in an extra monitor, plugged in a USB uh, <laughs> keyboard, and I was like, well, we got to finish the record. So I spent the next three days mixing to this battered laptop. And you have to have those, you have to go through it. You have to, the, the technology gods are against you. The recording gods are against you. And you're just like, why? Why is this, why does this amp sound so stupid? I'm standing in the room, it sounds genius, and it's the same 57 in front of the same thing as I did like three days ago. Why does it sound horrible today? And you're moving it around and you're doing all this stuff. It's like, not saying that it has to be pain and anguish, but it has to be practice. Practice. And like, you're not going to have all good days and and everything you make is not going to be good. And like, if you aren't down with that at the end of the day... Go do something else. Just go you, do something that, else. I'm sorry, kids. Just leave. Turn, shut your laptops. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> totally. You know, it it is uh it is a labor of love when you're starting out. Your description there just made me want to record a band so bad. 
I haven't been in a room with like five people making music at the same time in like, you know, a year and a half, two years. It's all been like single instruments. I just like now all I want to do is find a band to record. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's totally. So, it's so much fun. It is. It's the best. And I did not want to use another drug reference, but I will. And it was that I, when you are like, when you are, when you are in front of the monitors and it's all coming together, it is like mainlining the best possible kind of high that you could think of. It is just, yeah. it's so, it's so, so, so good. The energy's real it's when the everybody energy's real. Yeah. clicks in. You can feel it. It's yeah. not just like, yeah, it's not fake. It's real. But I wanted to transition a little bit. You do a lot of composition, and now you're in this podcast world, mm -hmm. which I believe also involves some composition. So I wanted to kind of sure. go that way for a couple minutes before we go. So you've done a bunch of documentaries, and obviously you've had syncs and stuff like that. Is that something that you wanted to do? Did you want to get into film and TV music at some point, or did it just come to you like that? I was just making stuff. You know, yeah. it just was, I was always, I've always recorded things as, you know, they're kind of like just, you're, you know, you're trying out instruments and signal paths and techniques and things. And I would always just be recording. The last thing last year was just out of the blue where I hadn't planned on doing any of that. I was already, I'm a partner in a podcast company. We, that's turned into this full-time thing. But I have a friend who works at a music house and he was like i'm working on this thing do you have any kind of like electronic sort of more abstract stuff anything lying around and i said yeah sure and i just like sent a dropbox link of a bunch of things that i'd been doing with reactor and a bunch of other soft synths some analog synths here and it was just like more modal sort of free form pieces and the director really liked it and they just asked me to tweak a few things i didn't really even wind up doing that much to picture because it was still coming together it was this self-shot uh, documentary. It was about small businesses during COVID and everyone was in lockdown. So they sent cameras to all these people and the people were documenting how they were surviving in the early days of COVID. So it was still coming together. So I didn't have like picture to do anything to. I just kind of stumbled into it. The podcast stuff was more like we were trying to figure out what we were going to do for the theme. And I sent some pieces of music to one of my partners and they said, this is really good. You should just, you know, why don't you just start with this and let's see if the client likes it. And the client was into it. So I wound up scoring that podcast and I did another one. And I'm trying to not get too far down that road because I'm involved in, you know, most of these programs on so many other levels that I don't want to add that on top of it. But I generally tend to make things that wind up being useful in the scripted podcast space. Just generally, you know, at the end of the day when I'm kind of like, unwinding. I have all these stations and I just kind of move around and make stuff. And then later on, just catalog it all and file it away. And then it becomes, maybe it'll become useful at some point. And that's a lot of how the composing sort of happened. Well, someone might just say, you have something and be like, yeah, here's this, you know? Cool. You mentioned scoring podcasts and like podcasts for me, says the podcaster, I got into it from like the educational interview side. But last time we were chatting, you were kind of describing what sounds like, I mean, audio movies with like sound effects and like score mm -hmm. and stuff. Is that a big thing that's coming up that you're you're into? Like that's you guys are making like scripted, like pod pod movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For lack of a better term, yes, yeah, something like that. The you know this first one, Cotton Club Murder, comes out and has um, Christian Slater, Juliette Lewis, and Rain Wilson, and it's this crime drama. And it's, you know, we're shooting for something that's closer to Netflix without the screen than radio drama. Like, that sounds like, you know, sounds like it was done in a radio production room and everyone's really tight on the mic and you don't right. really have any sense of space or anything like that. These are fully scripted, you know, these are a lot of TV writers are working in this space now, and these are fully scripted, fully scored, fully sound designed shows, dramas. That is amazing. And we, I'm working on a whole slate of them. I mean, I, the ones that are already announced, I'm, I can, you know, talk about, which is... um. We're working on a crime drama with um, Ethan Hawke, and it's set in the early 90s with uh, Ethan Hawke as like a bail bondsman bounty hunter. And uh, we're working on another show, which is uh, in the Sherlock Holmes space. Um, we have a bunch of things happening in the horror space that we're working on. So I went from, you know, yeah, doing the thing that uh, 
working on records in my studio and working with artists and bands to um, I'm running a team of six editors now and uh, working with directors and helping them translate what are essentially, for the most part, visual scripts into audio, which that can take some work. Yeah. And um, working with the writers and then sometimes the writers are the directors and sometimes the directors are other folks and then connecting with them and figuring out how we're going to build out these sound worlds and doing research on the time and making sure that our sounds are appropriate because there's no visuals. We have to be really sure that every sound that we're using is from that time. If we're doing a period piece, like I'm going to be working on a the Sherlock Holmes piece is, you know, is uh, around the turn of the century, you know, it's like in 1903, I think. And um, so, you know, I don't want to just have a bunch of like horses on cobblestones, you know, and uh, we're working with my friend, Will Bates, who is composing for that. Okay. And he's just doing an amazing job helping to build out that sound world just purely through music and his his work is really amazing. He's an incredible composer. And he and I talked a lot about how we could illustrate that particular time period where, you know, you've got the Industrial Revolution happening and the beginnings of electricity and you're mo moving towards motor cars and planes and how the world is changing and how we can illustrate that purely through music. Yeah. And so this feels like a very wide palette so that music is just part of it. But there's a lot of paying attention to sonics and that space is still, I, I don't want to call it underdeveloped, but I think that there's still a lot of growth and evolution happening in scripted podcasts where, you know, we haven't really had a scripted podcast that was like guided by voices, sounds like, you know, a guided by voices, lo-fi scripted podcast yet. And I may not be the person to do it. It might be some kid in their garage that does it you know and yeah. their their scripted podcast doesn't have to be lo-fi but it's just there's just so much in that storytelling space that's going to be coming there's all sorts of initiatives into immersive obviously but into atmos and you know all this new technology with the apple ear pods you know like the earpods pro with the head tracking immersive audio stuff is that is just a whole territory where it directly relates to mixing in Dolby Atmos, which we're doing on some of our podcasts coming up. That's amazing. So it's this, yeah, it's this, it's a huge, huge, huge palette to play with. It's exciting. Very It's cool. really exciting. I'm just so fascinated by how deep you're going. And how, like, because a lot of those sounds, when there's no visual, like you really have to make sure if there's a sound effect that it's clear what that thing is. You know, it's a sound design in Foley, except without the visual. Well, yeah, because you, you, you can get some pretty dicey sound in Foley as long as the visual's there. Yeah. But without it, you know, you, it just has to be evocative, you know? That's the whole thing, is that you have to use every bit of the spectrum as effectively as you can, and you really have to be thoughtful at everything matters. Everything yeah. matters. That can be kind of overwhelming. I just got done mixing that Cotton Club thing a few weeks ago, and that's like, you know, 292 minutes of audio. That was a... That's deep. I had to put my head down and just and just do it. But I had a, you know, it's different than making records because I had a team of people helping me. I had three other editors that were working all day, every day to prep materials that were going to show up, you know, on my desk. That's awesome. Um... I wanted to go back to, you just said everything matters and just cycle all the way back to your production style. That's an amazing thought process right there. Everything that goes into a production needs to matter, whether it's a podcast or a record. But I had, uh, I guess, two last questions for you. One being, do you see this music and sound design for podcasts? Obviously, podcasts are growing and growing and Spotify and everybody's putting a lot of investments in. Is that something like a uh, like a young composer kid should consider as a as a potential outlet for his music, his scoring for podcasts? Well, there's not a lot of money in it, but there is definitely, there's more budgets for that than there are for indie records, you know? <laughs> and I mean, and I don't mean to say that in a, in a bad way, it's just the truth, because those budgets are, you know, continually shrinking because everyone would just love to get those records for free. You know, the baseline has been set that the record is just delivered because someone made it in their bedroom and it's, you know, and it can be a number one smash. I mean, I love Billie Eilish and Phineas, but they've set the bar pretty high. But 
I think there's an incredible, incredible space for composers in the scripted space. There are other places, documentary, you know, it doesn't just have to be scripted podcasts, it could be documentaries, you know, like on cults or like, you know, it's just all murders and cults and horror and like, you know, so <laughs> hopefully they're doing something that would sounds would cross over with that. But I don't think that's the only thing I think that would be ridiculous. But the problem is with that sort of area is that the music libraries are really, really developed. Like they are so deep that the ability to drag really expressive cues out of a place like APM it yeah. it takes it takes a while but you can do it and so what i think though is where a young composer there's a, some room for them is that like if they just said hey here's my reel and i'm really interested in this space and they were willing to work for the the budgets that you know that are there which are there are budgets but they're very small they're not like film and tv but there's a there's a pathway there and they show up understanding the form that's the main thing is we, I get a lot of people that I talk to that are just like, yeah, I kind of listen to podcasts or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but have you listened to like this podcast? Do you understand how music is being used there? It's like, if someone just showed up and said, Hey, I want to do this, but I've never done it before. I would be like, that's great. And I love the music that you've done. But if they showed up and said like, I listened to this podcast and I noticed this, I listened to this podcast and I thought this, if they came and I talked to them and they said that to me, they said, I really like this form. And I see what could happen here. That's a different conversation. And then if they just said, here, here's my reel of stuff and I'm willing to work for nothing, that doesn't mean anything. Honestly, right. the best cue that they could write, you can go somewhere and find that. But if they said, I have a point of view and it's like, and I understand this form and I see an opportunity there, then that's more interesting and more valuable than any sort of presentation or amount of music that they could put in front of me. Well, it's like a team member instead of an employee. Yeah. Guess, or, well, you, you know, the reason that you would be bringing someone in to do that is because you wanted something original. You wanted someone's point of view and you wanted a collaborator that could bring something very special to what you were doing. If they were interested in the forum and they said, I really want to do this and here's what I can tell you that I know about it, then that would be very interesting. I would love to, you know, that's kind of the, you know, Will and I have known each other forever and I've seen him work on so many different programs, but we also just started talking about it and he was like, you know, I'm actually interested in working in this space. It's fascinating to me, you know, yeah. and like working with no picture. And there's a lot of opportunity for composers because when you don't have to work with picture, there's a lot of room to say things, but you still need to understand the structure of film and TV composing because you can't just put a song in and have people talking on top of it. Right. There still has to be the understanding of how you tell a story and narrative arc throughout like a two-minute scene and the twists and the turns that happen and how to illustrate them and how to tie themes together for character. And like, you still need to know how to score. You can't just like slap music in there. Even when you're going to APM, we spend a lot of time thinking like, what key are we in? How does this tie together thematically? Like, we just don't take like stuff out from anywhere and just paste it in the background. It is super deliberate. We, right. might, only use, we might only use 10 seconds of an APM cue just because it has some beautiful high string line that we like that ties into something else and we're layering and layering and layering and layering. So the podcast scoring is more, in, in the scripted space, is very akin to film and TV scoring. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's fascinating that you guys are that deep in it. I think it's really cool. Definitely going to check out the, uh, the Hollywood one that, I don't think it's out now, it comes out. It comes out on uh, the May 27th, so I don't know when that'll be... Uh, depending on when this comes out, but... It'll be out when this yeah. comes out, I think. So people can people should check it out. Last question for you, which I end every show with, is um, what for you right now is your current biggest goal? And uh, what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? Mm. My biggest, biggest goal. It doesn't have to be a, a sound one, right? It can just be whatever. It can be wh whatever you want to share, yeah. I mean, I think that the last year... I think the last year stopped me from going out into the world, even to the point where like, I've been, my next step towards my goal is literally a step. Like I've been going out and walking every morning and I just, I want to continue just moving. 
I know that sounds crazy, but it's just like, I spent this last year working with everyone building this company and working on all these podcasts and trying to get out and, 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 and move and stay in motion and everything. But I literally had to spend so much time in front of the computer, almost more time than I ever spent on records that I just want to, I just like want to be out in the world and want to be comfortable with no mask. And I want to be back. I really want to re-engage with the world. You know, the flower of my agoraphobia bloomed in this garden of lockdown. You know what I mean? And I just (laughs) want to, like, my next step is a literal step. There were just weeks where I'd be like, I got to the end of the driveway. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I am a closet agoraphobe. And I just, it's hard for me to get the inertia to go out. That's, you know, I would love to sit in front of the speakers and tinker away and and do that. And my next step is just like getting out every morning walking and going out and like, let's go on a hike. Let's go walk. I just want to go like walking and re-engage with the world at large and people at yeah. large. And, you know, that's that's the biggest goal. Yeah. I think uh, people in our, our industry, I think, found it a little bit easier to sit in a room for a year and a half than they, yeah. they should have. It was just like, oh, I, I can make some music and no one's going to bother me. Okay, cool. I'll be over here. Yeah. But yeah, it's... It's uh, it's really easy to just want to stay like that, and, mm-hmm. you know, you just because that's where we're comfortable and that's what we enjoy. Dude, I enjoyed chatting with you so much. I love that you have like you have such a clear connection with like the emotion of what you're doing. You know, I hope people take that away from this conversation. Is that that's what you're going after when you're making music or you're making podcasts? Is you just like you understand emotion reaction with people, and I think that's that's really cool. Yeah, I enjoyed I enjoyed hanging. Is there do you want to share anything with anybody, uh, any websites or anything that people can find you at or if they want to? Oh, no, I don't know. I'm like, I don't really do that. I have like an Instagram account, but I, I don't even really post there very much. <laughs> I Yeah, I just, I never really, um, I got rid of my Facebook account like years ago. I never really did anything with it anyways. I never found it useful in any way. I just didn't connect with it. And Twitter just became a place where I, I didn't really want to read like, Every, I didn't want to experience the nerve endings of the internet. Like I had no interest in the <laughs> the twitching nerve endings of the beast. Like everyone's initial reaction to something didn't really interest me. So I don't really have a, like a big digital presence. It's not that I think it's bad. I man, I I'm so obsessed with like the clean talk, like TikTok and clean, like with all the all the posts of cleaning stuff. I love that, you know, power washing, <laughs> shower magic, like I am down. But in terms of like generating content where they could find me on the internet, I don't know. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. Oh, well, thank you so much, man. This was uh, such a good hang. I, I hope you Oh, good. It. It's so good. To, it's nice to see you. Great to chat. And, um, you know, thanks so much, Travis. Pleasure. So that's a wrap on episode 37. Thanks so much to Tom Monahan for taking the time to come out and hang. And definitely be sure to check out what he and Treefort are doing in the podcast space. It's super cool. And as usual, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate all of you spending your time with me every week. If you are enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review or sharing with a friend. Also, please don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net and join in the conversation there. So on that note, I'll see you next week.